Well, friends, it is my honor today to introduce you all to the Reverend Dr. Doug Pratt. Doug is no stranger to many of you here at Christ Church. He has the really tough job of pastoring in Bonita Springs, Florida, which sounds okay today, but sounds really good come February in Chicago. He is the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Bonita Springs, a congregation very similar in size and shape to ours here at Christ Church. Over the years, Doug has done some advanced studies in nonprofit management. He's provided leadership to numerous Christian boards. His sermons have been published widely. He's got a ton of great stuff that he has done in his life. But what I know to be true and what I've heard about you, Doug, is that you are a man after God's heart. And that is the greatest reason to have anybody come share God's word with us. So for that reason and so many others, we are grateful that you're here and we welcome you warmly to Christ Church of Oakland this morning. Thank you, men's choir. Boy, you guys were awesome. Thank you, the bell ensemble. Terrific worship. Those of you who are in the contemporary worship venue, last night I had the opportunity to hear that phenomenal worship band. And so I know you have been uplifted by incredible worship for the last few minutes as well. And I have to say that uh, I feel so blessed. I see some familiar faces. I see uh, people who love the Lord as I do and who have been so welcoming to me. And this worship service, it has been beautiful so far. Uh, frankly, anything I give to you is gonna be surpassed by what you're giving to me. Tracy, your leadership of the service and uh, just the spirit of Christ alive here is uh, just so wonderful. So thanks for letting me be with you. There are some similarities, even though our venues are a little bit different, Naples, Florida, Oak Brook, uh, not exactly the same place, but the Spirit of God shows itself in comparable ways, and so it feels like I'm home. And uh, Pastor Dan preached at our congregation last April, right after Easter, and uh, he has extended to me the opportunity to be with you today. You know, it's common for uh, Big Ten basketball teams during the season to uh, play each other home and home in each other's arenas. So uh, that's what Dan and I are doing, and it's a pleasure to be in your arena here today and to be able to share with you some thoughts about the world that is rapidly changing around us. In fact, what I want to talk to you about today, we'll call it the world without him. But first I want to describe to you the critical turning point in the plot of one of the all-time classic Hollywood movies. Here's what happens. The hero is in grave danger. The forces of darkness are closing in relentlessly. There seems to be no hope. Which movie am I describing? Can you guess? Of course you can't, because that's the plot of hundreds of movies. It seems as if it always happens. Why, John Wayne and his wagon train are circled and are attacked by the Indians and there is no cavalry in sight? James Bond is captured by the supervillain with plans to uh, take over the world and there's no way he can get out of that one. Indiana Jones is captured by the Nazis, right? Uh, Luke Skywalker is in the grip of Darth Vader. It happens over and over again. Uh, but this particular film I'm thinking about 
has the hero in great danger from inner enemies, hopelessness, despair, discouragement, depression. All of his world seems to be collapsing in upon him with no way out. He's actually wondering if the world would be better if he were dead than alive. He's thinking about ending it all. Now, this is an emotion that I think we can all relate to, or at least someday we will. Even if you and I have never gotten to the brink of wondering if we should end it all, nevertheless, we've all at times faced difficulties and problems in life that have caused us to feel some discouragement. When you're in pain, that's all you can see. When you're very sick, that becomes your small little world, your prison. When you lose someone you love, it hurts so bad, and it overwhelms you with a feeling of hopelessness. Or when your marriage or your family life is torn apart by conflict, or when you lose your job, or when you are, uh, have a company go out from under you, and declare bankruptcy, or when you've made a whopping big mistake and there are consequences to pay, or when you're in the grip of clinical depression. All of these cause us to feel that darkness like a cloud traveling around over our head that blocks out the sight of the sun. Well, that's what our hero is feeling at this particular moment. And then a messenger of God appears to show him hope and to change his perspective. George Bailey, in the film It's a Wonderful Life, had a visit from his guardian angel Clarence, who hadn't yet won his wings. And Clarence came to show George the way. And oh, by the way, if any of you are in that place right now where it feels as if a dark cloud has come over you, ask God to send his messenger of hope and then wait for that messenger. Maybe, just maybe, it'll come today. Well, we consider what Clarence gave to George Bailey, which was an amazing gift the opportunity to see what the world would have been like had he never been born. Do you remember the film? It's a classic at Christmas time, beloved by generation after generation. And what Clarence gave to George and that ability to imagine what if, what if something had not happened, namely his birth, is a fascinating exercise in what has come to be referred to as alternative history which is not just a plot device of screenwriters and cheap book novelists, but actually is being practiced today by some of our leading historians and scholars who are taking a serious look in order to understand the significance of events in human history at the what-ifs. That's alternative history. Why, we've had some great scholars who have speculated what if the South had won the Civil War 
And we today had to show passports if we're traveling from Oak Brook to Naples, Florida. And people 500 miles to the south of us would be living still in slavery. What if? What if Hitler had decided to invade Great Britain and had conquered that island nation and had chosen not to invade the Soviet Union? What if World War II turned out very differently? How would the rest of the 20th and the early 21st century be different? This is, this is a fascinating exploration. But alternative history is not new. In fact, some 2,000 years ago, a brilliant scholar applied his mind to that very type of discipline. His name was Paul, known as the Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of the Christian church. And in his letter, known to us as 1 Corinthians, he poses this question, what if Christ had never risen? It's indisputable that the Christian faith is built solely upon the fact of Christ rising from the dead after he was really executed. Had Jesus stayed in the grave, there would have been no Christian movement. It would have been aborted. It would have died before it even had been born. And therefore, there would be no church, no Christian movement. How would the world be different if Christ had not risen from the dead? Well, that's the question Paul poses. So let's read a little bit of alternative history here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 14, and you are welcome if you wish to follow along. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. That declaration of pardon Tracy shared with us a few minutes ago wouldn't matter, empty words. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, as I've already said. You're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ, Sarah's husband, they're lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Ah, uh, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Well, that's some fascinating alternative history that poses for us the question, what if the world was without him? What if Christ had never come? Or what if his bones rotted in a grave and he never came back to life? What if there was no Savior? What if there was no Christian message? Well, that very timely question is being posed by one of our brilliant young American philosophers, a man by the name of Jeremiah Johnston, who has written a profound book with the single one-word title, Unimaginable, subtitled, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity. 
And Jeremiah pursues a case of rigorous alternative history, but not by pure speculation alone. He's got the facts to give to us. And here is what he covers in this book. I'll give you a short synopsis if you haven't read it. He first of all poses the question, what was the world like before Christ came? Well, we know what it was like. And in spite of any uh, romantic vision we have of uh, ancient Greece and Rome where everybody walked around in togas and spouted philosophy to each other. In fact, it was a brutal time. The world was very dark and life was very hard and we know that. So we need to see what the world was like before Christ came. And then secondly, what would happen to the world where Christ is consciously and intentionally removed? And we don't have to speculate about that because we've seen it in Hitler's Germany and in Stalin's Russia. Relentless efforts to remove all faith, all voice of God, and all Christian morality from uh, their uh, land so that the state was all powerful and only its will prevailed. We've seen what that does. Then the third part of the book. What happens when Christ is embraced not just with lip service to uh, join a church and get your names on the roll, but I mean really embraced by individuals and by uh, uh, groups of Christians alike. What is the best case when Christ has really been given the power and his, his spirit has been turned loose? And so we look at all of the changed lives, including testimonies that can be shared right in this room and in the contemporary room. And what happens down through history when Christians have labored to uh, bring uh, rights, to save the unborn, to uh, abolish slavery by the efforts of the early abolitionist movement, uh, uh, by efforts to elevate the, uh, the worth of women, by uh, all of the things, establishing hospitals and schools, and on and on. So those who today, and if you don't know it, let me assure you, there are many among us in our country and in Europe who would like very much to take what once was known as Christendom, Western Europe and North America, and uh, turn it into post-Christendom. They would like to eliminate the Christian faith and actually will tell us that our society would be better if these last vestiges of religion were just stripped out. Is that true? Is it really true that if there had never been a Jesus Christ, your personal life would be better today? Is it really true that America would be better if there'd never been a Christian faith? Is it really true that the world would be better if we were all under Sharia law or under atheistic communism? What kind of a difference would there be had Christ not come and not risen and established his church and invited us all to become a part of it? Well, that's the question. What we're talking about today could be described as the challenge of a worldview. Everybody actually has a worldview, even if they've never heard the term, even if they have no idea. But a worldview simply means a set of assumptions, a set of operating principles, values. This is how we act. This is what we believe about the world. Everybody has it. The Christian faith is one worldview. It's very internally consistent. It applies to every aspect of life, but it's not the only one. 
why in the Amazon.com of worldviews, you can scroll through and find all kinds of options. You can choose a worldview of pure atheism, that the world happened by chance and it has no meaning and purpose, and your life is also worthless. You can choose the worldview of materialism. The only purpose in being here is to get all we can. The one who dies with the most toys wins. You can choose the worldview of pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of power. You can choose to follow Sharia law. You can choose to uh, follow Eastern mysticism, believing that life is just a cycle of death and rebirth with no ultimate purpose. You can choose to be an optimistic humanist and be convinced that mankind is evolving ever better and better, and any day now we're going to solve all our problems and everything will be wonderful here on earth. There are lots of different worldviews. America was founded on a general consensus of a Christian worldview. Not that every one of our founding fathers was personally devoted to Christ and living out the Christian faith consistently in their life, but nevertheless, there was a general consensus. These are the rules. These, this is the, the principle upon which we will live our lives. The Bible was the foundation of our law and of our morality, and today there are many in our nation, and certainly in Europe, which is further than us down this path, who would like to remove all hints of it or tell us as Christians to just keep it to ourselves and shut up and stay in your little closets if you want to talk to God, but don't you dare enter into the public arena or in any way acknowledge God because we've outlawed him. This is a prevailing desire among some. Here's the irony. I think in general, almost all Americans and Westerners today agree on a certain set of values that we hold dear, including uh, principles of human rights and personal rights and fairness and tolerance, and, and we believe that slavery is wrong and that mistreatment of women is wrong and <clears throat> that abuse of power is wrong. We, we hold those viewpoints. But where did they come from? They did not come from ancient Greece or Rome. They did not come from ancient Egypt or India or China. You don't find those principles anywhere other than where the Bible's teachings and faith in Christ and in the Lord God have taken root. So here's the question. If you took those values away, the core underlying foundation, would the things we hold dear last? over the next generation or two. Imagine that we, uh, we get down on the floor uh, with a child or a grandchild and we are taking some blocks or some Lego or uh, when I was a kid we had these tubes that came with a bunch of sticks called Lincoln Logs. Uh, any of you ever seen those? Boy, I love those. I could build some amazing structures with those. So let's say we get down and we're building this little castle or tower or whatever it is, and then we try to remove the bottom row. What will happen to that structure we built? Is it not possible that it will all collapse on itself? That's the danger that our contemporaries who want to remove religion and faith and yet hold on to the values we think are important, that's the danger. They need to hear this parable. You may get what you want, but you may not want what you get. Ooh. I saw an example of that from 
a very well-known atheist. Richard Dawkins is his name. He's a biologist and he has written books about why God is a myth and why we, would, we need to remove faith from modern life. But amazingly, in an unguarded moment, a few years ago as he was being interviewed by the Times of London, Richard Dawkins said this, I have mixed feelings about the decline of Christianity insofar as Christianity might be a bulwark against something worse. Be careful, Richard. If you get what you want, you might not want what you get. And this is a matter of grave concern. Many Christians in our nation today feel strongly about the importance of holding on to our faith and fighting to keep our foundation from being yanked out under us, not because, well, this is what we know and we don't want anything to change, we're comfortable, but more significantly out of concern for our children and grandchildren and the world they may be inhabiting when we're gone. And a perceptive writer in the magazine National Review a few months ago made this comment about his work and experiences with the millennial generation, but this is what he says. Many millions of American young people just seem lost. They're deeply suspicious of organized religion, yet they can't escape the nagging need for transcendence in their lives. They want purpose, but they don't know what purpose means apart from pursuing material things. They are keenly aware that mankind is fallen and that while the post-Christian West has allegedly killed God, it can't seem to replace him with anything better. A profound warning, I think, and one we need to pay attention to. Now, uh, that writer identifies what we ought to talk about for a minute. It's one of the big elephants in the room, and it is the failings of what he calls organized religion, the institutional church. Whew, I'm from Pennsylvania. Uh, in fact, I actually uh, met and knew personally the former Bishop of Pittsburgh. The report from uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Attorney General of the abuse by clergy all over that state was devastating and uh, has caused a lot of people to be uh, broken and, and wounded and even to contemplate giving up their faith. And I suspect that Illinois cannot claim to be without fault. I think it's nationwide and worldwide. And I wish that we Protestants could, could comfortably and conveniently say, well, at least it didn't affect us. Well, it has. In fact, there's a prominent uh, megachurch in one of your neighboring suburbs. Many of you know it's gone through some really tough times lately. So let's be open and candid about this. The organized church has imperfections, and we have failed. And we weep, and we need to confess and repent and seek God's mercy and the forgiveness of those who have been wounded and to acknowledge openly that the church is filled with imperfect people and even its leaders. Let me say very clearly, please do not put your trust in me or in Dan. Don't count on Bill Hybels or the Pope to save you. We're all fallible, flawed human beings. But that's not the most important issue. What really matters is Jesus Christ. 
Our book makes it clear that all of us, you and me alike, we're all flawed and imperfect, and in fact, we're imperfectible in this life, but Jesus is the only perfect man and so much more, and it is our Lord and not we, his failing followers, who really matter. In fact, that is how Jeremiah Johnston ends his book of Unimaginable. And this is what he says in his final appeal, and that's, this is what I want to share with you. We do not worship Christianity. We worship and follow Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes the difference. There is no perfect church because the church is made up of imperfect people, but the Spirit of Jesus is at work every single day. Ask Jesus to enter your unimaginable circumstance. He will bring you forgiveness, hope, healing, and transformation. That's what you need to know. That's what the people who are dissatisfied and discouraged and dropping out of churches because of their feeling, failings need to know. It is Jesus we proclaim and Him alone. And when you let Him loose in your life, He will change you in powerful ways and He will make you more like the others who are likewise yielding their lives day by day to Jesus. This powerful process is one that makes us more like one another. Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, famously once said, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. His point, and it's applicable to all of life and not just family life, is there are lots of different ways to go and there are consequences to many of those ways, but there is a, a narrow way that if you find it, will lead it to you and your family and your personal life to the path that brings the greatest fulfillment and joy. And it is that path, when we follow it, that leads us to become more like one another. Growing Christians come to look more and more alike, just as Tolstoy said, happy families look more and more alike, not because there's a groupthink, because there's peer pressure, oh, you've got to conform, or you'll be thrown out of the club, but rather because the same Spirit of God at work in us produces the same fruit in us and brings us together. And that's a powerful action. I want to show you this picture from a uh, remarkable American photographer named Michael Belk who has captured an image. I want you to notice it, if you can see it on the screen. An ordinary Joe is standing in the middle of the photo, and he happens to be a growing Christian. And in his process of getting to know Christ and yielding parts of his life to Christ, he looks in the mirror one day, and what does he see? He's becoming like Jesus. Now, not physically, this is just a visual image of the spiritual transformation that happens. The more we grow to know the Lord, the more we become like him, the more his character, the more his words and his thoughts and his actions will motivate and transform us. And so it is my hope and my prayer that everybody here, everybody in the sound of my voice, has chosen to give their lives to Christ and to become a part of that amazing lifelong process of becoming more like him. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment in prayer? 
Lord Jesus, though some around us today would say that we'd be better off without you, yet the, the witness and example of millions through history, as well as all of the consequences of your work in the world, are so clear and undeniable. But even more importantly, Lord, we know that you love and care for each of us personally and desire to be a part of each of our lives and to gradually transform us more and more into your image, that we might be like your perfection, that we might learn to turn from sin and embrace the holiness that you have demonstrated and lead us to. So, O oh Lord, help us and grant your grace to us just where we need it this morning, that we might know you better and become like you. For we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.